Um, Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to start. It's at the very end of that chapter, Luke 23, verse 54, and then we're going to read into chapter 24. We're going to focus on, I think, to no surprise to anyone, the resurrection. So, so go ahead, turn there in your Bible, but I would encourage you to, to get your finger in Philippians. Um, we've been studying through that. If you're visiting with us, you may not know this, but we've been studying through the book of Philippians for several weeks. And as we put together what we would do for Easter, it was really working in Philippians that led to this theme, uh, the empty cross and the empty grave. Uh, we, studied, we looked at the empty cross Friday night and the empty grave we obviously will be talking about this morning. But it was from Philippians that that, that really started. And so uh, as we come to to the application or the, uh, the, the, the end of the message, I guess, I don't know another way to say that, because uh, it won't really be the end. It'll be like, I think I got like 15 points to make out of Philippians. No, I'm just kidding. It won't be that many. It'll be several fast points just showing the, the transformative power of the resurrection. And so, so we're going we're gonna to spend some time in Philippians. So go ahead and get your finger there ready to flip over uh, as we do that. We're going to read of the resurrection. We're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and study it together. So picking up in chapter 23, verse 54. No, not 54. 55 is really where I wanted to start. But we can start at 54. <laughs> you guys are in for a treat today. I've got this together. Let's do this. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified And on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we are not a people who attend a perpetual funeral. (sighs) The weight of that, the thought of that is, to me, unbearable. Oh, Father, you have done what you've always said you were going to do. You've, you've provided eternal life by the sending of your son, by his death and his resurrection. And I am so grateful that we get together here this morning and consider what it means to us, what it proves to us, and, and just think about the transformative power it has on your people. I pray that by just the preaching of the word today and looking at these, at these ideas, that we will be encouraged, that we will be strengthened, that we will be transformed, that we will be conformed further into the likeness of your risen Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the, day, at the end of the day on Friday, 
Jesus' body was removed from the cross. The cross was left empty. And on Sunday morning, the grave was found that way also. Friday night, we focused on that empty cross. We considered the, 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 the sufficiency of the sacrificial component of redemptive history. We, we considered how it was made once for all time. The cross is empty. This was the point just for, for those that maybe weren't here or to bring it back to our mind. The cross is empty and remains so because Jesus' one sacrificial death is completely sufficient. It is completely sufficient, lacking nothing, sufficient to end his own suffering for sin. The perfect Savior died and didn't endure suffering eternally because he was perfect and sin had to be imputed to him so that righteousness could be imputed to us. It's sufficient to atone for all our sin. There's not one sin left over. There's nothing we need to add to his work. Sufficient to satisfy God's wrath completely. So that now we are objects of grace, recipients of his mercy, and not people who are opposed to him or treated as his enemy at any time. It is sufficient to be made once for all. When Jesus Christ died, he said, it is finished because there's no more sacrifice to be offered for sin. He didn't go into hell and pay eternally. He didn't hang on the cross eternally. He came down from the cross. His cross is left empty because the work is, that redemptive work, sacrificial work is finished. And though the death is completely sufficient, that's not the end of the story. Imagine attending a funeral every day of your life. We don't have to do that. Because that's not the end of the story. As we just read, when the woman showed up, the women showed up at the grave that morning, what did they find? An empty grave. Jesus was not there. And though the death was completely sufficient, it doesn't stand alone in redemptive history. It doesn't stand off by itself, and it was never intended to. Look again with me, just at what the angels said to these women in verses 6 and 7. He is not here, but he has Risen, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on and on the third day rise. The gospel message, this is the point that I'm going to try to impress upon you this morning from the scripture. The gospel message is good news because Jesus' cross and Jesus' grave are empty empty. He's not hanging anymore. We we don't have to remember him hanging upon that cross as if some blood blood and gore fest is is necessary for us to, to take part or participate in his work. All we must do is believe in it. When you go to the place that they say is Jesus's tomb, there's no body there. It's empty. And in the same way that Jesus' death was not the result of of God's plan gone wrong and, 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 and mankind having some, I don't know, upper hand and outwitting God in some way, Jesus' resurrection is not God's response to the scheme of man either. I, I love that, that Dave determined to, this morning to read from Genesis 3.15 all the way back at the fall. God was already making promises of deliverance. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. See, it's not completely true to say that Jesus was born to die, although we say it often. It is true that Jesus was born to die. But it's not completely truth. It's not the, complete, it's not the whole story. He was, and, 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 
And, and it's good and right to understand that and identify that and say that and celebrate that, that Jesus was born to die. But the complete story is that Jesus was born to die and rise. Jesus, just as the angel said, <laughs> and Jesus affirmed himself, is alive. He is risen. He, he said this in, in, before they ever left Galilee. As they turned towards Jerusalem, Jesus says, and, and Luke records this himself. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 20, 18 and 19. Again, Jesus speaking. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This is Jesus' own words. Jesus is affirming, yes, what the angels have said is true. He had said it. He had taught his followers this truth, this reality. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, showed them how, how this has always been the testimony of the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And many people think that this is an early creed of Christianity. and something that they would affirm as, as, as in believing to identify themselves as followers of Christ. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I would point out two things. Paul didn't just speak of the cross as first importance. Paul spoke of the cross... The crucifixion, the empty cross, the burial that, that, that led to the empty cross, and the burial that would lead to the empty grave because of the resurrection on the third day. All of that, that is of first importance. Not one or the other. Not an either or, it's a both and. And in addition to that, second I would point out, Paul doesn't just reference the scriptures in reference to Jesus' sacrificial death, but also his resurrection. Look at it again. That he was, uh, I'm sorry, that... He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. In all likelihood, Paul is thinking of, of uh, maybe Isaiah 53. It's, a, it's a, the, the, the prophet Isaiah is speaking of the suffering Savior. And in all likelihood, Paul has that in his mind as he's thinking of the Scriptures that speak of, of the sacrifice and the, and the, and the um, penal substitutionary atonement that's going to... Re- going to take place on the cross but he also refers to the resurrection in accordance with the scriptures hosea chapter 6 verse 2 you go back and look that up and it speaks of on the third day being raised and and, and then jesus himself in matthew i forget the chapter i want to say it's around matthew 10 he speaks of the sign of jonah you know what happened to jonah He's in the belly of a well for three days, and then, as if he's dead. In fact, he falls out of the ocean, and he floats to the bottom of the sea, the story tells us. And a big fish comes and swallows him, and it's as if he's dead for three days, and then is vomited out onto the beach. Now, I don't want to take that imagery too far, but I don't think death is vomiting Jesus out, but I think Jesus is stepping out of death. 
The gospel message is good news because Jesus' cross and Jesus' grave are empty. As I think about this, and I thought about this over the coming, these preceding weeks and considering this message and what we would do, the the question kept ringing. Is one more important? Is is there really a balance between, because... I mean, we focus on the cross a lot. And I think in Christian tradition, we focus so heavily on the cross. And, and I came across, as I was preparing and reading through things, I came across um, uh, J.M. Boyce uh, wrote a systematic theology, a concise and readable systematic theology, as he calls it. Um, and he asked this question, this, this very question, he's, which is more important to Christian theology, the death of Jesus Christ or his resurrection? And this is his answer. The question is unanswerable. Although the death of Christ is what he explicitly came into the world to accomplish, the resurrection is no less important historically as evidence for Christ's claims. Now, I just told you that I don't think that Jesus came to die is all the truth, right? So I would nuance my answer just a little bit differently than than Boyce does here. But I agree with him wholeheartedly in this. It is only because of the resurrection that the gospel of the cross was understood and then was preserved and transmitted across the centuries to us. I mean, imagine this. Jesus is not the only person to have been raised in history. Lazarus was raised. He was dead. His sisters saw Jesus when coming and they're like, if you had just been here, you could have healed him. You could have made him well. And Jesus says, hey, you know, I did this so that you could know that I have the power of life and death and I am the resurrection. And and, and they're they're shocked, they're they're stunned. And he says, bring me to his grave. And he'd been dead for four days. Jesus, standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus, says, come out. And Lazarus comes out. But we're not placing our faith in Lazarus, are we? Why Why are we not elevating his resurrection? Why are we not? Because it's... It doesn't have a cross to precede it. But if Jesus were still dead, there'd be no reason to celebrate him either. The gospel message is good news. It's the best story ever told. Because Jesus' cross and Jesus' grave are empty today. And he is alive. Our Savior is risen and he is reigning. And he is alive. Well, Friday night, we focused on the crucifixion, its significance, its sufficiency. This morning, we are looking at the resurrection, what, what, what it proves to us, and, and, and its transformative power on us. And so I just want to lay out a few, just three things to demonstrate what, what, the, what, what the resurrection proves and why that's significant. First, Jesus' resurrection proves Jesus is who he claimed to be. So if Jesus says, hey, by the way, I'm going to go to Galilee, or I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the, and the chief priests and the scribes there, they're going to crucify me, and on the third day I'm going to rise. If he said those things and he goes there, and none of that happens, well, I mean, he's forgotten in history, right? But if he goes there and somehow makes it appear as if all this comes true, without it really being true, then he's still a sham, he's still a charade, he's still fake and false. But Jesus' resurrection, after his sacrificial death, proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In fact, Peter, preaching the first gospel, the first recorded gospel message on that Sunday, or not on that Sunday morning, I don't know what day, probably I could think about it and figure it out, but it was Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, uh, uh, they're all 
prophesying in languages that they don't speak, but everybody around them is understanding in a language of their own. Somebody steps up and says, ah, they're a bunch of drunk folks. Look at those drunk people. I can't believe they're drinking so early in the morning. Peter stands out from them and says, they're not drunk. What you're seeing is a work of God. And then he begins to preach. As a result of that gospel presentation, 3,000 people are added to the church that day. Here's what he says, making a case for Jesus' resurrection, proving Jesus is who he claimed to be. Brothers, in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 32, in the middle of his message, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. He, he had to have picked. This is like the, the, the top pick. He couldn't have picked somebody that was maybe more prominent. Maybe the, maybe the closest he could have come or some other prominent figure might have been Moses. But he picks David. He's dead and he's buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses. Now, I don't know if they knew exactly where David's body was at that point. There is a place you can go today. You can take a tour, you can go, and you can see where they say he's buried. You can see that. I assume that there's a body in there, or else they wouldn't be pointing as a tomb. Nevertheless, everybody suspects that David's dead. Nobody is questioning his reasoning here. Whether they can go to the exact spot or not, they recognize David's dead, his body's laid in the ground, and that's it. But we have all witnessed. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Every one of these 120 people, that's the minimum that he's talking about, that are prophesying that morning in languages understood by the multitude of people that are watching and looking on. At least those 120 people are witnesses. It could be that he's referring to people in the crowd as well. Because all these people would have been there. They would have understood, hey, this, this crazy thing happened. This is a story. That, let me just, I, I guarantee you this was not a secret. Jesus' resurrection in that day was not a secret. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. It was all over the place. Everybody was shocked by it. Everybody was stunned by it. They were trying to come up with stories to explain it. But then Peter puts the nail in the coffin on all these stories. And this is what he says. This is what he summarizes from the point he's making in that passage. You can go back and read it in closer detail later. Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, without doubt, confidently, is is what he means, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If Jesus were not crucified but resurrected, he'd just be another Lazarus, right? I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If Jesus were crucified but not resurrected, he'd just be another religious zealot forgotten in history. If he was resurrected without his crucifixion, he'd just be another Lazarus. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. His empty cross and his empty grave prove he is both. He's not crazy. He's not lying. He is who he said he was. And our sacrificial Savior raised to life proves it. Jesus' resurrection proves God's providence and 
power. Ephesians 1, 16 through 20, Paul is praying for the, for the church. And he, he says, I do, not give, give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him. It is a prayer for, for knowledge, for experiential knowledge, for understanding, for wisdom and ability to apply that knowledge. And then he's going to break out three overarching requests. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. God's providential plan for your life. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you know what you have to look forward to in glory is greater than any treasure on earth. And, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That you may know the hope, that you may know the inheritance, that you may know the power that God has worked towards you who believe. That you may know it. And how did it, how, how, according to what power? The power that raised Christ from the dead. That power has promised us and guaranteed us the hope and inheritance of the saints. That power is the very power that raises us from the dead. Jesus' resurrection proves God's providence and power, His ability to do it. If Jesus were still dead, there'd there'd be no reason to even offer this prayer. Would there? There'd be no power. There'd be no hope. There'd be no inheritance. But because He's alive, it proves God's providential plans and His power. Proves it. And gives us reason to be confident in it that we can know it. That we can understand it and apply it with wisdom in our life. Jesus' resurrection proves God's providence and power. Jesus' resurrection proves He has overcome sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to the church. They're wrestling and arguing, debating between whether there's a real resurrection or not or whether the, you know, what's, what's going to happen in the end. And with logic and spiritual inspiration he proves there is a resurrection but he uses jesus as the foundation of that and he says beginning in verse 17 and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you're still in your sins wait a minute you mean he could die sacrificially on the cross and if he didn't rise then i'm still yeah then also who have those then those also who have fallen asleep in christ have Perish, that perish, that's it, they're done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all pity, or of all people most to be pitied. And you got up this morning and came to church to put on some nice a little bit most of us, not no, I won't say most, many, put on a little nicer clothes than we typically wear on Sunday. Thank you, Billy, for showing us all up. I don't know how many arguments you have with your kids, combing their hair, brushing their teeth, how, how, how much trouble it was to get your spouse who's always late in the car so that you could leave. Don't tell me that doesn't happen at your house. And, and, and we do this every week, most of us. Paul's saying, hey, there's something better to do if Jesus is still dead in the grave. 
There's a better way to spend your time. Because if he's still dead in the grave, then he's not the Savior. He hasn't overcome sin and death, and you are still in your sins. You might as well go live it up. I don't want that for you. I'm not trying to encourage you to that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're to be pitied if Jesus is still dead. But in fact, I love these, these big butts in the scripture. There's these moments where it's like, bam, right in your face. It's going to show you the truth. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means he's the one that went first, but many are going to come after him. For as by a man came death, so by a man has also or has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're going to live eternally in Christ's presence, it's going to be because he died and he rose and that's applied to your life. Jesus' resurrection proves that he has overcome sin and death. Let me just say it again. The gospel message is good news because of Jesus' cross and Jesus' grave are empty. Now, just, just to go back to the question, just to think again on this idea, well, then, okay, well, well we don't want to separate them too far, right? We don't want to go too far. We don't want to lean into one too much. And one. Here's the thing. Let me encourage you to speak of the cross, the cross of our risen Savior. We're not remembering a, a dead guy in the ground. We're remembering the cross of a risen Savior. And if you're going to speak of a resurrection, remember that it's the resurrection of a, a sacrificial Savior. And we can speak of these things. I can talk about the cross knowing that I'm talking about the cross of a risen Lord. I'm talking about the resurrection of a, 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 a sacrificial Savior. We can do that. And in these things, we can know that the gospel message is finally the good news that we all long to hear. And if we believe it, there is transformative power for us and our lives. And so we're going to look at that from Philippians. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we can be sure, we can be certain, we can be confident, we can be sure he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Philippians 1, 6. One of the standout verses that people paste on coffee mugs all over the place, or you might see it on people's bumper stickers or, or on their, on their uh, Facebook pages and profiles, that, that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In the same way that Jesus wasn't abandoned into Hades, neither will we be, because he has died and he is risen. Our confidence in this life as we look to the next, our hope, our, our, our confident expectation, if you will, it's rooted in Jesus' death and his resurrection. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we have every reason to rejoice. In this letter of Philippians, 16 times Paul, in his short four chapters, I think it's like 104 verses altogether, 16 times Paul makes reference to joy and rejoicing. He doesn't even get out of chapter 1, doesn't even get past the, really past the introduction before he begins to reference the fact that he's praying or the motive he's praying with, the attitude he's praying in. I, let me say it that way. The attitude he's praying in is joy. He, he, I'm praying in joy for you. And, and, and his reason for rejoicing, though, even though he's imprisoned, it quickly follows. He's imprisoned, and not only is he imprisoned, but there's people out there preaching Christ with selfish motive. 
And what does he say? I will rejoice. I won't rejoice because he's, I won't be sad and beat up and forlorn and discouraged because these people are out there doing something against me. I'm going to rejoice. Why? Because Christ is proclaimed. What's being proclaimed about Christ? The death and resurrection of our Lord. He's going to rejoice. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to not be defined by the difficulties of the day or to be depressed because of the, the, the life is hard. Because this life doesn't define us anymore. His death and His resurrection do. He's not even out of the first chapter when he begins to speak about the fact that he would give up his own life and what he prefers so that they can progress in joy and in faith. He's not just concerned about his own rejoicing and joy. He's concerned about theirs. I'd rather die and go be with Christ, but I know it's better. I know it's necessary, he says, to be here for you, for your progress and your joy. In the faith. That's Philippians 1, 18 and 19. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we have every reason to rejoice. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're the only people, Christians are the only people on the planet that can even talk this way. This is ludicrous sounding. I, I, I shared this passage, this verse, back when Bob and I went to Senegal uh, in December. I shared this verse with them and they were like, and these believers I'm talking to, but they've never considered it this way. Never thought of them, brand new infant believers. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Everybody's trying to avoid death. Why is that? But as Christians, we don't have to avoid it. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to, to, to I mean, we shouldn't be going and trying to make it happen. Don't misunderstand. But we don't lose in death. Death is gain. To live is Christ. We have a whole new purpose, a whole new priority, a whole new way to live. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We live every day. We have the opportunity to wake up every morning living to the glory of our crucified and risen Savior. As long as we suck air on this planet, we have the opportunity to wake up every morning to live to His glory so that more people get to know about this dying and rising Savior. But if he comes and takes us out, calls us home, if that happens to me before this is over, I know it'll freak you out a little bit, but would you just celebrate a little bit because I'll be with him. I'll do that for you. I'll gather with your friends and we'll, we'll mourn the fact that we have to endure the difficulties of death, but I'll call them to see the promise of our Savior that you are with him. In his presence forever. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, empty, we can live selflessly and humbly. And the way Paul presents this, he, he, he gives us this, what's called oftentimes the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Speaking of, of Jesus' humbling himself, not, not or, or knowing that equality with God is a thing to be grasped, but he doesn't do it. And he humbles himself, takes the form of a servant, coming in likeness of men, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and God highly exalts him. The pattern is placed there, not so much so that we deal with the, the doctrine of the incarnation, although we have to deal with the doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus, God, the, the second person of the Trinity, becoming man, and we have to deal with that. 
but he sets it as an example. You see, Jesus' sacrificial way of living, sacrificial service, humble living and, and, and doing nothing out of selfish ambition, it enables us to do the same thing. Sets the example for us so that we have something we can follow, so one to look at and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can actually humble myself. I can entrust myself to God in heaven. And even though people may take advantage of me here, even though people may actually do the worst thing I, that they think they could do to me here and kill me, God will exalt me. We can finally live for someone else other than ourselves, humbly and selflessly. He empowers us for that. He sets the example for that. But imagine if he's neither dead nor risen. Or if he's dead in the grave and not risen. Or if he's just another Lazarus. Without the components of the empty cross and the empty grave, there's no mind of Christ to put on that's humble service. Sacrificial, selfless service. Trusting that our exaltation and our gain is in God's hands. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we can live selflessly and humbly. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, our words can express worship instead of grumbling. We actually have something to celebrate. We actually have something great to say. This Philippians 2, 14 and 15, where he tells us that don't do anything in grumbling and disputing this, arguing, this constant infighting. We, we have an ability to actually express words that glorify God because Jesus has died, bringing forgiveness to us so that now we're able to enter the Father's presence at all and, and, and offer words of adoration that aren't just us acting in self-promotion. Uh, he actually enables us to do that, but then gives us a reason to do it by, by, by rising and, and, and now being alive. And now no, no longer do we attend a funeral every day, but we get to celebrate the fact that our Savior is alive. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, our words can express worship instead of grumbling. Rather than being a people whose words indicate our constant dissatisfaction with the difficulty of this life, and the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can be a people who rejoice even when the motives of others are ill motives. Even when people are doing religious things for, for selfish gain, we could still be rejoicing. Their attitude doesn't have to affect ours. We can express our worship. We can praise God that He works even through the most broken of people. I mean, goodness, if He can use Pharaoh. Right? He raised him to power for a reason. Even Babylon has a purpose in the whole... I don't know if you've read the end of the Bible yet. Babylon has a purpose. I don't want to... I don't want to fulfill their purpose. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. But in his death and in his resurrection, we don't have to. So let's be a people who are marked by that in our language. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Philippians 3, 7 and 11. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty no matter what else we have. I should have also added no matter what else we don't have. In Christ, we have the greatest treasure. I, I, I don't want to crush our ambitious spirits in pursuing and, and, and achieving and, and, and expressing the image of God in us that's creative and, and seeking to express. I don't, I don't want to crush that in any way. 
But if we're after those things simply to build ourselves a kingdom and make ourselves comfortable and build, build, build our own identity out, then we're chasing the wrong stuff. There's all kinds of ways we can enjoy the good things of God's creation. There's all kinds of ways we can enjoy God's goodness in his creation. But, but when we have, have, have enjoyed them at the expense of God, then we've denied the fact that Jesus is really the greatest treasure. If we've sought to enjoy them in the absence of God, then we've denied that Jesus is the greatest treasure. If we've denied them, or, or denied, if, if we pursued them it, instead of God, then we've denied that Jesus is the greatest treasure. It's only possible to get Jesus' resurrection, to get Jesus' righteousness, to get his resurrection because of his empty cross, his sufficient death and sacrificial, his sufficient and sacrificial death. His empty and his empty and victorious, uh, his empty grave, his victorious resurrection. Now, one, one last thought, and we haven't studied it yet, but as a teaser to come back next week and, and to, to look and, and study these words in Philippians, because we are a resurrection people, a people who are, who are marked by the resurrection of a sacrificial Savior, I just want to, I want to look forward. I can't remember if I put the verses on the screen or not, or if I added them to it, but, but I just want, want you to hear this. Because Jesus' cross and grave are empty, we eagerly anticipate his return to come for us. Philippians 3, 23, 21. Let me go ahead and just read it to you. You just listen along. But our citizenship, because of his empty cross and his empty grave, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Because Jesus' grave is empty, and because, or Jesus' cross is empty, and because Jesus' grave is empty, we have the hope, we have the confident expectation, we can anticipate with eagerness the return of our Lord to come for us, to take us, to be with him, to make us like him. And so every one of you, every one of you, mature Christian and not yet Christian, who are sitting in this room, let me encourage you, rest in Trust in, rejoice in the empty cross and the empty grave of Jesus. Some of you, you will be just pressing deeper in, and some of you may be beginning today to begin to believe. Trust in him. (laughs) It's the substance of the gospel message. It's this substance of the gospel message, the empty cross and the empty grave. And in it, we find joy and life and hope. Let's pray.